Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 172. In this episode, we're talking about longing to know and learning with Professor Esther Meek. Professor Esther Meek is Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Geneva College and Senior Scholar at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And she's the author of the book, Longing to Know, The Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. In this conversation with Professor Meek, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of her classic book, Longing to Know. And over the course of the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about teaching and learning and thinking about each of those with respect to the insights of her book. Chris and Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Professor Meek? This episode is actually the first of a two-part series that we're going to do with Dr. Meek as as a broader conversation about covenant epistemology, her philosophical paradigm that she proposes, and how it relates to both learning and teaching. This episode is really helpful in getting some of her concepts and understanding how she's trying to transition the way that it is that we think about what it means to know something or to come to know something. Yeah, I'm... I was glad to be a part of this conversation. Um, I've I've really benefited from reading Dr. Meek's work. In fact, uh, my son who started uh, his first year in college, I've given a copy of her book uh, to him because he's actually going through a theory of knowledge class, an epistemology class. Uh, everything that I have learned from Dr. Meek has been uh, really good for me, uh, good for my soul. <laughs> um, and... Uh, something that I've been happy to recommend. Uh, One of the things that I found really interesting, I was was happy to have her interact with the idea of learning and knowing in the context of the technological marvel of OpenAI and ChatGPT and uh, what what she would have to say with uh, our sort of paradigms of knowledge. in, in, in light of these technological advances. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Esther Meek. Well, Professor Meek, welcome back to the Two Cities Podcast. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Well, we're really excited to celebrate the 20th anniversary of your book, Longing to Know, and to have a have a two-part conversation with you about teaching and learning. And in this first one, we want to focus on learning with you. But as a way to kind of get into this conversation, can you tell us a bit about your, your book, Longing to Know, that's in its uh, 20th anniversary? Uh, what are you arguing there? What's the thesis of the book? Yeah, well... Hi, everybody. And this is the book. (laughs) This is one of my very old versions of it. (laughs) And um, uh, this is a book that I wrote, you know, that got birthed 20 years ago and out of which a a whole lot of abundance has come. And um, 
actually, if I can put a plug into that, I, 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 there's now an audio version of it. And, and uh, now the audio version has a new afterword which tells the story of what's coming out, come out of Longington Air. So that that is part of the the uh, celebration of Longington Air turns 20. Well, uh, Longington Know is a book about how ordinary knowing works. And um, I, in particular, in that book, target um, people considering Christianity who have questions about knowing. So the driving question is whether we can know God and the the driving uh analogy is that knowing god is like knowing your auto mechanic and um i as a philosopher uh am uh convinced that everybody is philosophical and so that which is offered in the way of philosophical uh work ought to be uh pitched to everybody and so i write that way i try to write um without you know I, I don't want to write to the kind of the inside ivory tower sort of a crowd so it's a very odd and playful book <laughs> but really what it's it's trying to do is offer an account of how we know that captures how we actually do it and dispels widely ingrained and damaging misconceptions of how we do it that we are up against hugely <laughs> in in uh i would say in the modern age and uh we we can't help but know the way that it's described in longing to know but we we tend to misdescribe and so we what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing uh is is two different things and we need to fix that if we're going to be better at knowing so I the kind of the kernel of uh, the innovative proposal about how we know that's in longing to know comes from a uh, a guy named Michael Polanyi, Michael Polanyi, who was a premier scientist at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, kind of uh, af after, you know, making all these discoveries and that sort of a thing. Um, kind of turned away to think more about how science actually works. And in particular, he was, what he said is, if we, if science uh, gives way to this idea of, uh, you know, the misconceptions about knowledge, no scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. <laughs> so we ought to maybe relook at what we're actually doing when we know. And so he was a premier discoverer, and and it seems to me, you know, I, I uh, presume in the book Longing to Know that the paradigm act of knowing is the coming to know in the first place, right? So it's not about explaining what you already know. It's about how you got to it in the first place. And so that's what Polanyi is, is all about. So it's his approach to knowing that I that um, I'd like to tell you about, because <laughs> I think it's key. I think it's really key to dispelling these delusions we have about what we think we're doing with regard to knowing. I'm wondering if you could tell us, first of all, before we talk about a description of how it is that we actually come to know things, what is the way that we think that we come to know? And how is that different from what actually happens? 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, one picture is um, that knowledge is collecting information. I think that's a, a paramount idea. And, and so uh, we, that's our job is to collect information and um, education then would be, uh, you know, we have this idea, you'd walk into a classroom and sit down and collect all the information, and then you would regurgitate it on the test and that would count as education. So uh, we, we really privilege the, the information paradigm. And uh, there's nothing wrong with information, but it's wrong as a, as a paradigm, a philosophical paradigm for how we know. And I, what we've done is we've exalted the data collection idea, um, which was meant to be contrived. <laughs> That's the whole point is it's, it's uh, contrived to uh, get at a certain thing that we're looking for. But the main act in coming to know in discovery is a whole lot bigger than, than um, data collection. Why do you think we got that assumption? I mean, we, we kind of, it is something we've inherited. It's something that we assume to be true that I learn things when I Wikipedia them and I learn about them. Mm -hmm. But how did we come to, to arrive at that assumption? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, and there, there's a lot that could be said, and there's a lot that's been written on it. But uh, one thing is it's really commodifiable. I mean, if you think about whatever educational experiences you might have as faculty or students, everybody's into assessment. And the assessment typically is that which you can count, has to do with quantity. And uh, that's, that's, you know, how you say how your institution has been successful. So it's commodifiable. Uh, it's um, easily transferable, uh, and and um, it's uh, free of responsibility. I think uh, it it can be totally disconnected from the teacher or the student or or whatever. So so it just it's it, it's like it's so nicely packageable. I guess. But then, you know, how it got to be the paradigm, there, there's a, a lot to that. But I would like to say part of its power, you know, our, our, if what are our idols in the modern age, I'd say utility and control. I would say it's control. And I argue a lot in longing to know about certainty. I think we've had uh, an exalted ideal of certainty. Uh, that's kind of ingrained in what it is to be modern that, um, you know, I've used the phrase certainty or bust, you know, we, uh, we, uh, knowledge is that which is certain or it's not knowledge. And we, te we tend to think that way and see that, especially if you, you know, you've got OCD or something, you know, which we might all do as a society, you know, we, we want, we want that control and we also want that irresponsibility you know, we don't, we don't want risk. Um, and so we're off the hook until we have like complete certainty. And uh, we have been kind of guilted into uh, thinking we're irresponsible if we don't have that, that certainty. And then you see, if that's your kind of your, uh, the 
the point from which you're looking at everything, then anything less, quote on anything else is less than. And and uh, you know, if it's if it's not certainty, it's got to be relativism or subjectivism or da, da da da. And all those categories, those binaries, as that's a word you might know, you know, either ors uh, have been kind of embedded in the outlook that we have. So it's either knowledge or not knowledge. It's we divorce fact from value, you know, uh, reason from emotion, reason from faith, art from science, you know, those those kinds of trying to narrow down to that which is exact and and uh, kind of methodically pure as, as um, information. And nowadays, you know, that's le led to all kinds of other issues, <laughs> as it always does. And that's really, in any of my books, that's kind of where I I start in longing to know, I start with the faith reason divorce, you know, that people just presume if it has anything to do with faith, it has nothing to do with reason. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about kind of how people think in the streets. It's that it's what ordinary people are inclined to think. It's like what your neighbor left to themselves would incl be inclined to presume about knowing. That's what I feel needs to be addressed philosophically. Dr. Meek, I'm curious to know if uh, if you've had the chance to reflect or interact with this new technology of, of open AI, um, these intelligent robots, either ChatGPT or Bard AI from Google. What's interesting to me about it is these are sort of these new ways that knowledge is being purported to be presented. Uh, robots can call the internet and mm -hmm. give us answers to questions that we ask it. Um, and it really does sort of symbolize the information equals knowledge type of paradigm that, that we're just talking about right now. And just curious what your thoughts are on, on, on this new interface of knowledge. I did uh, write on AI for a paper I gave at Cambridge for a Polanyi uh, group, but, but uh, Polanyi, uh, as a Hungarian scientist of Jewish extraction, uh, washed up at Manchester, University of Manchester, at the same time that Alan Turing was there. And uh, he, as it says in at least one footnote in personal knowledge, he entirely dissented from Turing's uh, belief that machines can think. And so he and Turing together put on like a weekend symposium of papers on this. And so um, Polanyi's little contribution is very small. It might be called Introduction to Cybernetics, which I think is what the word used to be that is now AI. So, uh, and what Polanyi is arguing is that knowing is inherently informalizable. Unformalizable. Which one is it? <laughs> One of them, <laughs> not formalizable. <laughs> and and so, you know, as I listen to you, Chris, uh, in crafting that question, you know, uh, maybe we should uh, be humbled uh, uh, by um, the the sadness of the the uh, to what uh, of what we've come to in our conversation. Uh, it's that mindless that it could be imitated uh, 
so uh, effectively <laughs> by AI. So, you know, lots of things that contribute to that. I mean, just think how how we are way more comfortable with looking at four people on a screen than we were three years ago, which is not a bad thing. I'm so glad to see you guys. But, but um, you know, uh, in our age of information and technology, you know, lots of things have inclined us in that way. I mean, the, you read Twitter and, the, the, you know, I, and I have to say Amber's really good at Twitter comments. <laughs> It's your youth, you know, and your your zest and, you know, lots of that is 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 really good. So, I, you know, maybe I have to qualify what I'm saying about chatbot. But but um, uh, I don't know. There's so much to be said about the, the waters that we swim in. But I would hold out for the paradigm of great knowing being more like an interpersonal encounter that in no way could be. Um, replicated. And what Polanyi rightly said, and I think this is fantastic, is look, there it's there are tools. That's fine. They're fine as tools. They're not fine as philosophical paradigms. I kind of wonder if maybe this phenomenon of chat GPT might be exactly what we need in order to reflect what it is we've been assuming that yeah. knowledge is for so long. I mean, you now have administrators and lots of people having this conversation of, well, would that count? Yeah. And according to this yeah. um, defective epistemic default that you talk about, it would, honestly. Uh, but there's something inside of everybody in this conversation that we know that that's not right. So I, I almost wonder if it's a bit of a blessing in disguise if we're willing yeah. to that's actually look point. at it. I think so. I think David Brooks recently wrote a, a piece on this uh, just to make the point that we ought to, it ought to encourage us to uh, be distinctive about what makes us human. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. And there's another book I'd recommend. I don't know if you're familiar with by um, Thomas Friedman. This, I don't like the title, Thank You for Being Late, but the subtitle is An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. And, you know, I, I went through there, we used to teach part of it, and I just kind of filled the pages with all the kind of human stuff he said, <laughs> you know, I'm, and made lists of it for my, for my students and wrote page numbers. And, you know, he, he uh, highly recommends some really highly non-computer-based, <laughs> very human things, you know, to 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 promote as, as an optimist in the age of acceleration. So that seems to me to, to go with it too. But, you know, you can, uh, you can design hugely sophisticated tools. And that's not just, uh, you know, in, in Polanyi's lab, when he was ahead of a lab, you know, it would take two years even to figure out for the glass blower to figure out how to blow the glass tube thin enough for whatever it is, whatever experiment they had to do. It took two years you know, just to figure out how not to break the glass, you know? I, I think that that's very helpful, though. And I think that, you know, my my point in bringing it up really is that for all of the marvel and um, I think sometimes the fear of what, you know, this new technology is is uh, is causing in our society, um, there's still a, a, a real sense that this is not knowledge, that um, 
that what robots can sort of pull together um, and and in sophisticated and plain language, um, there's still a recognition that there's something deficient about it. And um, if this really is sort of our our next jump at at um, at knowledge, we're starting to see uh, the shortcomings of it. And that's, um, yeah, that's good. And contrast that, you know, whatever I don't know about it, but contrast that with what we four are doing right now. That is like there is so much life in in cyberspace around conversations. It's unbelievable. It's really, it's unbelievable. So, and and I'm I'm not tempted to think either any of you is a a, a chat <laughs> thing, <laughs> a bot. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently recently listening to the Ezra Klein show, um, and on that uh, on that show, um, Ezra Klein was talking with a, with a guest who is a you know a computer scientist expert in AI, and and as they were talking about the relationship of ChatGPT to knowledge, uh, they they likened it to the philosophical concept of bullshit. Uh, which uh, Harry Frankfurt uh, proposed in a Princeton University Press uh, publication uh, some some time ago, you know, where where its relationship to knowledge is, um, you know, it's not lying, right? Where you know what it is and you and you intentionally um, disregard it. It it's it's a it's a it's a lack of interest or concern with with that with that truth. And I'm just in light of this as as we you know, could could probably go on and on about the the fears and concerns that we have about chat GPT and what it might do to, you know, uh, plagiarism, you know, and, and you know, student um, uh, student copying of assignments and these types of things from whatever they could produce off of uh, off of one of these chatbots. Can you tell us more about the vision of the relationship between knowledge and truth that gets us away from the bullshit of chat GPT? Oh, my. One thing I'd like to say is here's the goal of life and of humanness. It's communion with the real. And the goal in education is to cultivate lovers of the real. And whatever you meant by indifferent, whatever it was you said, <laughs> loves the opposite of that and encounters the opposite of that. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm posing a paradigm of knowing. And when I say paradigm, I mean, look, this is the best sample that we ought to all aspire to in our efforts to know. It's going to be something more like uh Knowing and being known in, in a sort of a covenantally uh, structured encounter of love. And it's going to be transformative where reality kind of walks in and takes you over. And quite honestly, the like you're saying, the bullshit would like, can I say, the knowledge as information paradigm. Really what that does is keep reality at bay. It blocks it out. So, and we haven't talked about subsidiary focal integration, but if you think of how you ride a bike, <laughs> it would be deadly if you looked down at your foot on the pedal, <laughs> right? Well, what that is, is reverting to 
focus on what you should be indwelling bodily. And what that does is it totally blocks out the pattern that has connected you with the real. So it puts you in the ditch. And that's what the knowledge is information. That's how the knowledge is information paradigm actually makes us worse at knowing. It, it, it just cuts us off from the real. And that's how we can get to something like the, open, the AI stuff you're describing. But the whole point is it's cut it, 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 it intrinsically cuts you off from reality. That's pretty damning. <laughs> I'm thinking about my students, and I think this is relevant for both teaching and learning. And what I'm finding is that there's another way in which my students are kind of trained or primed to be disconnected from reality. And that is by not necessarily understanding knowledge as information, but understanding whatever it is that we do at school as self-expression. Um, and so, for example, I actually have a hard time getting them to learn the building blocks of knowledge. Like there are content points that you have to learn before you can then do other higher order thinking skills or whatever. And I find a real resistance to just memorizing the stuff that you got to learn before you can do stuff with those yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and instead, they'd rather kind of just say what they think about something or kind of, you know, that's where the bullshit comes in <laughs> um, for, for me. But um, but yeah, to me, that's another way of disconnection from reality, even though it's not information, it's self-expression. I guess that's the only word I'm thinking of, but I wonder if you have insight. Yeah, that's in well said. And, and uh, you know, uh, you're, you referenced the defective epistemic de default, which I talk about in Loving to Know, as I set it up in Loving to Know. And faith, the faith, reason, divorce, and longing to know is one of I, the daisy of dichotomies, as I call it, in, in loving to know. But another one is subjective-objective. So really, uh, you know, there was a, a wrongful divorce <laughs> somewhere at the beginning of modernity between objectivity and subjectivity. And, and, you know, because we're still, you know, inhaling the fumes of modernity and uh, we want, you know, you get an 18 year old and they want to be passionate. What option have they got if there's, if they've been taught, there's no passion in the information. So they have to turn to something subjective. I know when I was teaching in a class similar to the one, I know that you're involved in a, you know, a core interdisciplinary uh, course that is hu humanities and artistry and stuff like that. I, re I remember saying, yes. Artistry is subjective, but it's not just suggestive, sub subjective, you know, and, and see when you think about if you kind of redraw what the the uh, act of coming to know is, uh, it takes all of you. <laughs> uh, so it's highly personed. That was Polanyi's point in talking about personal knowledge. It's not subjective. It's more like Martin Luther saying, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. It takes all of you. And, and it's a highly risky, responsible involvement, right? That uh, where the proper posture is confidence. And, you know, all you need to do is go start looking at sports. I mean, 
there's just no way you could emphasize either the objective or the subjective and be an outfielder. You just can't. You know, you couldn't play football. You just couldn't. No matter how you define the term, you know, it just wouldn't happen if you were stuck in the subjective-objective dichotomy. You just couldn't do it. You've got to have a throwing yourself into it that is highly skilled. And the older player gets the high, the higher the wisdom content. You know, they talk about that. You know, a player's smart, but he's young, you know, so he's got to be, he needs to kind of grow into his wisdom, you know, those, those kinds of things. So we have, you know, if, if you look at ordinary life examples, you've got this whole person involvement that is in submission to an object of reality that is actually involved with you, right? So it's coming after you. I, I'm arguing in the new book, it's, it's offering this welcome to you, you know, and in, inviting you, inviting you in. And we just reciprocate hospitably, <laughs> you know, and, and go after it. In my new book, I'm talking about artistry. And I, and I feel as if we have been, uh, those people who are interested in artistry and beauty have been kind of compelled to, to be privatistic and subjectivistic about what it is that they're doing. And see that object of subjective divorce and our approach to reality. I mean, what we've got going on with reality in modernity is we don't trust it. We don't even, you know, we think it's gonna hurt us, <laughs> you know? And, and, and um, we don't even believe that it's there. And so really, I think that that kind of at the heart of the modern, ages mindset is kind of a no a saying no to to the real and i think knowing as communion with the real you know and love loving the real those are yeses and and you gotta you gotta have a a yes in there we've talked about knowing being very different from information gathering and also very different from just subjective self-expression. You've used terms like communing with the real um, and indwelling something. And I'm wondering if you could flesh the put flesh on these in, let's say you use the example of how to ride a bike. Um, how does one become, become a bike rider or a, a rider of a bike? Could you break down those steps for us? Um, and the reason why I ask is because we actually pulled up what chat GPT tells us about how you would write about. <laughs> uh, thanks, Chris. So this is Meek versus chat GPT oh, <laughs> on how to ride a bike. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Well, um, my father really wanted me to be a bike rider because he loved his bike. And uh, we were too poor for me to own my own bike. So he borrowed one, it was too big for me. He did not believe in training wheels. He had high confidence in my ability. And he took me to the back of our yard where there was a grassy hill and he put me on this contraption. And, you know, I, I'm kind of a baby skeptic, <laughs> you know, and I was sure no human being could balance on two points. And um, he put me on that contraption and he pushed me and he yelled, balance. And I, I can remember thinking, what does the word even mean? You know, how, like, what does this word mean? 
And I have no recollection of the bottom of the hill, but I am a bike rider. <laughs> so um, the way I uh, describe the process, and it's it's not a step-by-step -step sort of a thing. Well, I, I guess I can make some steps, but um, at, at the beginning, at the top of the hill, and I, I talk it this way in loving to know, uh, my body was an object. It's like I had no idea what to do with my body. The bike was alien, and I was sure I was going to die on that hill. So in Longing to Know, I talk about three sectors of clues, and, and they are the, the place of your puzzlement, the situation, your felt body sense, and then the... the, the um, uttered words of the authoritative guides. And at the beginning, they're all meaningless. Yet somehow you have got to trust the guide <laughs> and try to climb into what the words mean. So somehow my body had to figure out what the word balance meant. And then like, and somehow trust my guide enough to somehow find how to give myself to this contraption in such a way that I could start to feel the world and, and come to it. And, you know, I'm sure my father thought at the bottom of the hill, I would have put these all together, which we would do. And this is why it's not a step-by-step -step process. There comes this moment when you shift from focusing on those things to bodily wearing them which, which Polani calls subsidiary. And it's, it's at that moment that you have the breakthrough uh, aha moment of this fresh pattern that in no way reduces to whatever steps you had at the beginning. It transforms what you were trying to indwell. And it makes total sense of them, but I I would never say I'm, I'll have to you know you'll have to blip me or something. Learning happens in this kind of lurchy backwards sort of way, <laughs> you know. And it's only after you've somehow fallen into the 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 gifted insight that you can look back and make sense of what it was you were doing. So when I taught my children to ride the bike, I yelled balance too. <laughs> what else are you supposed to do? So I think to have, a, you know, to, to see that you it's so not linear and it's so not random either, but what you've got is this, what Polanyi called subsidiary focal integration to a transformative pattern um, that, you that you have to undergo. And we, we, any bike rider has done it and any skill learner has done it. Too, because knowing is to, to learn to know is to learn a skill. And back to the information thing. Don't despise in particular memorization uh, because like think of times tables, you know, you what happens is if you get the student to memorize it, the point what, and I kept saying this to, to my logic students is I wanna put this in your pocket. You know, I want you to wear this. And, and so when, when you memorize that, when you memorize, a, a, you know, I've always had my students memorize Psalms and I gave extra credit on, on tests. You know, I give out lots of extra credit, which is a, a teaching thing, I guess. But, but uh, in any case, then when you've got it memorized, then 
you know, then you wear it like the chemical table, the periodic table of chemical elements. It ought to be like a tattoo. And then the world comes to you that it opens the world. And then the world comes to you in, in through that, that framework. And so what memorization does is it, is it gets it so you bodily indwell it. And that makes information sing. That's what makes information sing. And, but what it, it shows is that the paradigm is not information. So it can't be a step-by-step -step process, whatever chatbot says. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I mean, it just give a synopsis of what chatbox says <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in contrast is, uh, well, it does let us know that riding a bike can be a fun and enjoyable activity once you get the hang of it. <laughs> um, so that's, we- Yeah, my dad said that. that yeah, we know that piece of information. Um, and then it just says, you know, adjust the bike and this is how you make it fit your body and then mount the bike and then start pedaling and maintain your balance. Right. And all of these things I was reading, I was like, this is, I know this is so much easier said than done, literally. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, this, and you know what that's like is the scientific method. So I, the skeptic, uh, thought I'd go on in chemistry. I really, you know, I did, I did like chemistry, but that scientific method, you get to step three, I think it says, uh, generate tentative hypotheses. And I just thought, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. So I cannot, I am such a failure. I can't even do the scientific method. But my problem was epistemological because there's a problem with the scientific method, which is what Polanyi was saying to the scientists in personal knowledge. If you think it's a scientific method, no scientific discovery is ever going to happen. Which is why if you just read this, there's never going to be a bike rider. Even sure. though I would say that when my dad taught me how to ride a bike, he did go over this information with me at the beginning, right? He did say this, this is where the brake is and this is what the brake does. And this is where you put your feet and this is where you put your hands. Like that's important information. Um, but I was not a bike rider upon learning that information. And so I, I would even say that chat GBT in this regard is helpful because it is giving us true information, but you got to do something. You, there needs to be a human that actually does something. Yeah. And, and you see where the information has to be for it to connect you with the world is it's got to be bodied. It's, it's not, uh, you know, put my foot on the pedal. It's the feel of putting my foot on the pedal the felt body in i'm in it kind of a thing so that i and what happens is when you ride when you find when the moment comes and you find that you've just kept your balance for half a block you know um you go oh and that's the integration it's like you actually kind of exhale you know with the with the kind of the beauty of of this integrated pattern and that's what the dis the moment of discovery is well professor meek thanks so much for joining us for this conversation uh it's it's been lovely and you know we're gonna carry it on to next week's episode and continue to discuss this uh, knowledge is information paradigm and it's it's kind of um problems specifically looking at teaching and how we can uh, think about this pattern um, uh, a little bit more in terms of our respective pedagogies and, and our respective disciplines. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're so, so welcome and thank you for having me.